This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Remain standing and open to the book of Galatians in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3, you'll find that in the Pew Bibles on page 973. We've been making our way to the book of Galatians. If some of you are maybe here today, maybe for the baptisms, we've been studying this book and arrived over the last couple of weeks at chapter 3. Galatians is Paul's response to some false teachers who were teaching that in addition to faith in Christ, we must add to the, the works of the law. And Paul is beginning to defend his position of justification by faith alone from Scripture. Beginning at verse 6, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works or on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of God. May God bless it to your hearts this morning. Let's seek his help one last time. God, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. This all will be vain, Lord, without your blessing. So we ask, dear God, that in your mercy and kindness to each of us here and those who may be following, Lord, online, that you would cause your word by the power of your spirit to bear fruit in each of our souls, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. The title of the sermon this morning is Why Faith Alone is the pathway to blessing. Why faith alone is the pathway to blessing. And that's stating it positively. But in verses 10 through 14, Paul states it negatively. In verses 10 through 14, Paul is showing why doing the works of the law does not result in the blessing of Abraham. That blessing which is a justifying righteousness that sets us right before God. What Paul is doing is he is contrasting two very different approaches to justification. Remember, justification is that courtroom term from jurisprudence. It is a judge's declaration that in the eyes of the judge, that person is considered to be innocent or not guilty or just. And so Paul has been preaching the gospel that justification is by faith alone. That is one of the pathways. The other pathway is justification by doing the works of the law that we might call legalism, a works righteousness, doing the deeds commanded by the law with the hope that that will set you right before the living God. But again, Paul has been very careful to say that that is not the gospel. 
He stated it most clearly perhaps in chapter 2, verse 16, where he said, we know, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but in contrast, you see, but through faith in Jesus Christ. For Paul, these two ways are antithetical. If it's by faith, it cannot be by works. And so Paul began to defend this gospel by appealing to the experiential component of the Christian faith. In verses 1 through 5, those who are justified have received the Holy Spirit by faith, and then he began to defend justification by faith alone from Scripture. We saw that last week in verse 6 through 9. Why Scripture? Because as essential and valid is the appeal to an experience, Scripture is the final authority in all matters dealing with knowing God and life and godliness. Scripture is the final arbiter. And for Paul, Scripture is the very voice of God. What Scripture says, God says. And so he defended the good news that he preaches that people are justified by faith and alone from Scripture by bringing out as his first witness from the Old Testament father, Abraham. Abraham is the great prototypical believer, if you would, the man of faith, the believer. And Paul quotes Genesis 15, which says that Abraham believed God. That's it. He believed he believed God, that is, he believed the God of promise and the promises of God, and it was credited to him. It was accounted to him as righteousness. This Paul appeals to Genesis 15, and the important thing we said about this appeal from Genesis 15 is the timing of it. When did this happen in the life experience of Abraham? In the book of Romans, he asked the question, was it before or was it after he was circumcised? It was before, before he ever took on the sign of the covenant of circumcision. Before, some 430 years before the law of Moses was given. And so from that statement, Paul draws a principle or an inference in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the true sons of Abraham? Those who believe like Abraham are the true sons of Abraham. And they receive the blessing of Abraham, which is justifying righteousness. A righteousness that we need to be right with God, but which we don't have in and of ourselves. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so having stated it that way in a positive way, in verses 6 through 9, now he flips it and he defends it in a negative way. He states in verses 10 through 14, why doing the works of the law does not result in the blessing of Abraham. It does not result in a justifying righteousness. Why the way of legalism, if we might put it that way? The idea, the thinking that Jesus plus something else is what we need in order to be set right with God. Why any other religion, why any other religious deeds or rites belonging to whatever human philosophy or human religion it might belong to, why all of that does not attain justifying righteousness. Faith alone attains justifying righteousness. And so to once again root his, his defense in Scripture, what Paul does in verses 10 through 14 is that he makes an assertion and then supports it with a passage from Scripture. He makes an assertion and then supports it with a passage from Scripture, from the Old Testament. He does this four times very quickly. It's all very densely packed here and some of it very difficult to understand. And then after those four defenses, it culminates in verse 14 with two results, two products of Christ's saving work for us on the cross so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham 
justifying righteousness might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this morning, what we're looking at together is the negative side of Paul's defense. Why the works of the law does not result in the blessing of Abraham. And first of all, verse 10, because to rely on the law, that is, as a way of making yourself just, to rely on the law is to come under its curse. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? He quotes from Deuteronomy 27, 26, with a couple of added words from 28, 58. He says, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Blessing and curses. These were not things that Paul has made up. Blessing and curse is a thread that runs throughout the entire Bible. God built them into the various covenants, various covenant bonds relationship that he has made with human beings. Blessing and curse. And here Paul draws upon the Mosaic covenant because that's the one that these false teachers are appealing to. And so he's saying, in essence, that you who appealed to the law to be justified, do you actually read the law? (laughs) Do you understand what the law says? That it says you'd have to keep every one of those commandments, and unless you do, you'd be cursed. And so he quotes there to support his argument from Deuteronomy 27. Now, what was happening in the original context of Deuteronomy 27 is that Israel was preparing to enter the promised land, And God laid out before the people the blessings that they would experience if they would obey. Now remember, these are people who have already been redeemed. They've already been liberated from Egypt, from bondage to slavery. And law is given to them, not because it's some sort of abstract thing. It's because it's it's part of the basis of the relationship that God has with his people. God is saying, these are the things that matter to me. And so he says, if you, if you keep the covenant, you'll receive these blessings when you're in the land, such things as good crops and health and so forth. But if you break the covenant, you knowing what matters to me, after I've liberated you, you will receive the curses of the covenant, such curses as crops that don't work, invasion by foreign armies, and diseases, and so forth. And so they went through the blessings and curses, and then verse 26 of chapter 27 of Deuteronomy was the last curse. It was sort of a summary statement of all the curses. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now, we, we can understand to some degree, how that applied to the people of Israel, because just explain what God was doing. The question is, how does that apply to New Testament believers like, like you and me? Uh, now how Paul sees an Old Testament text applying to New Testament believers, New Covenant believers, that is not always easy to understand how Paul is doing that. Uh, there's lots of books written on that and what happens often is that as Paul writes he expects or he counts often on his reader's ability to fill in the gaps what I mean is that when Paul writes to people in the New Testament they had shared information that he doesn't feel is necessary to recount as he's writing because they know what he's talking about and so forth It's a little harder for us to fill in the gaps and understand, well, how was he using that verse and making it apply to this this section? But suffice it to say this, that Paul sees in this verse from Deuteronomy 27, not only what God was saying to Israel at that time, but he sees in that verse a universal principle, you see, that applies to everyone 
who misuses the law. Notice as it begins, verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law, all who seek to use the works of the law as a way to justify themselves. Paul sees this now as a universal principle applying not only to the, the Jews of that day but of Israel or, or even to just the Galatians but applying to you and me. Anyone, anyone who seeks to rely on the works of the law will come under the curse of the law. Why? Because the law itself says cursed, it, cursed be everyone all people, anyone who does not abide by how much of it? All things written in the book of the law and what? Do them. And so what, what gap does Paul expect us to fill in? What's the unstated premise? Here it is. No one can do that. <laughs> Paul doesn't say that, but that's what he's saying indirectly. How are you going to justify yourself with the law when the law itself says you'd have to keep every bit of it all and not skip one iota? And if you don't, you would fall under the curse of God, the curse of the law. So let's be clear. To seek to justify yourself, to make yourself righteous in the eyes of God by doing the kind of commandments we find the law telling us to do, is to come under its curse. Why? Because the law demands what? Absolute perfection. Every thought, every decision, every word, every deed of every hour, of every day of your life. <laughs> perfection. But no one can do that. The brother of the Lord James wrote in James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law, let's say you could, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Why? Because cursed is everyone who does not keep all that is written in the book of the law. The law was never meant to be a way of justifying ourselves. It functions surely as a mirror to show us that we need the grace of God, not as a ladder by which we attain righteousness before God. No one can do that. Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, says Scripture. And the Old Testament says it very clearly. King Solomon, when he was praying at the dedication of the temple, there in his prayers he said, there's none who does not sin. <laughs> there's not none righteous, not one, says Paul, quoting the psalmist. And so to, to seek to justify yourself by keeping the law of Moses is to come under the curse of the law of Moses because you cannot do it. And the curse of the covenant, the curse of the covenant signified coming under the condemnation of God, coming under the wrath of God, being cut off. And it's the curse of the covenant is something that begins in this life, in this material world, and extends into the life to come if we are not coming out from underneath the curse of the covenant. You see, the blessings and the curses of the covenant with Moses were meant to point to, to anticipate the ultimate blessings and curses of either knowing God or rejecting God. In other words, the blessings of the covenant going into the promised land anticipated and pointed to the blessings of the life in the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation. And the curses of the covenant of Moses, rejecting the word of God, breaking the covenant with God, pointed to the ultimate, the ultimate results of not being in covenant with God. Death in this life, the soul that sins shall die, physical death, spiritual death, but also eternal death and condemnation under the wrath of God. And so essentially this is what Paul's saying in verse 10. It's idiotic to think that you're going to do that. Why will keeping the law of Moses never result in being right, set right with God? Because it is impossible. It is utterly senseless to appeal to it. It makes no sense at all. To choose that way is to choose to come under the curse, you see. That's the first way. I mean, the first reason. 
The second reason why doing the works of the law will not result in the blessing of Abraham is because of what Scripture says, the righteous are promised life only by faith, not by doing. Verse 11, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for, and he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, for the righteous shall live by faith, he says. So this is, this is Paul's second argument. He is supporting the very same thesis, but he's coming at it from a different angle. And he says, look, what I just said in verse 10 is absolutely evident. It's evident. It's, the word means it's obvious. <laughs> It's obvious to anyone who reads the law enough. <laughs> he says, you can't deny this if you read the Old Testament. It's obvious that no one can be justified, he says. Now notice he uses the word justified because he's saying, I'm talking about the same subject here. Justification. And then he adds, before God. What kind of justification am I talking about? I'm talking about justification before the living God. I'm not talking about being justified before other people. No one, he said, it's obvious, no one is justified before God. Then he says, by the law, and we know now what he means by that, more explicitly, what's he mean? By means of trying to keep the law in order to be justified. He says, it's, it's obvious to anyone who reads the Bible that no one does this also because of this. What does scripture say? He quotes the minor prophet Habakkuk 2.4, right? And there it says, Verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, we're probably more familiar with the New Testament use of Habakkuk 2.4 than we are actually with Habakkuk 2.4. <laughs> we don't all maybe very frequently read the minor prophets or the prophet Habakkuk. We quoted it together from Romans chapter 1 just a few minutes ago. So what was happening in the time of Habakkuk when uh, that statement was made by God, the righteous shall live by faith? What was happening is that God had announced, God had announced through the prophet that he was about to judge the wayward, idolatrous people of Israel and Judah. And he was going to judge them through the Chaldeans. And the prophet Habakkuk was struggling with this desperately. When you read the book of Habakkuk, he's struggling with it. He finds it hard to accept that God is going to use Chaldeans to punish his own people. And he, he, he essentially, he asked God the question, how can, you, how can you do this? Why do the wicked seem to prosper and get away with their wickedness? How can you raise up the Chaldeans to punish your own people, Israel? I know we're pretty bad right now, but they're worse than us. <laughs> it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. I don't understand God, and God answers the prophet this way. His answer was, the Chaldeans too will be punished in good time. In fact, all sinners, all sinners will be punished. The proud who trust in themselves will not continue when judgment arrives, he says. But the righteous, you see, shall live, shall live when judgment comes. The righteous shall live, shall experience redemption when judgment comes. How shall they experience it? By faith. The righteous shall live at that moment by faith. They're the ones who will experience redemption when the judgment comes. And so God was teaching Habakkuk, and he was teaching his people through Habakkuk how to face the difficulties and inequities of life that appear to, to appear to contradict God's promises. And what Paul says, does is he sees again a universal principle in what, what God told Habakkuk, and this is what Paul sees in what God told Habakkuk. That is, we secure God's trust by faith. If we're going to live when the judgment comes, if we're going to live when... God brings upon the world the judgment then we need to trust. We secure God's favor by trust. The righteous shall live by faith. 
What Paul's essentially doing here in this passage again, along with the last week's, is he keeps showing over and over, there's always only been one way to be right with God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis. And now I'm appealing to Habakkuk way over here in the minor prophets. And what does God teach the prophet? The righteous shall live. How? By faith, you see. It's always been by faith. The writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament amplifies this. Remember, we appealed to it last week, Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then the author begins with Abel, right at the very beginning. By faith, Abel. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Moses. By faith, David. And on and on and on and on. It's always been by faith. And so again, the point, the point in Habakkuk that Paul sees and makes a principle is that we secure God's favor by trust. Faith is the key to one's life and relationship to God. Life-giving, justifying righteousness, salvation, redemption, when the judgment comes is not the result of human merit, or doing the works of the law, it is simply the result of faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul will appeal to his own life experience in this. Of all people, remember, of all people who could maybe uh, reflect on what it's like to try and earn your way to heaven, uh, to merit your way through good deeds, through keeping the laws of Moses, Paul was, was an outstanding example of a self-righteous Pharisee among all Pharisees. Remember Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul reflects upon the fact that all of that is nothing to him now. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. As to law-keeping, no one could pin anything on me. <laughs> God alone looks at the heart, but no one could pin anything on me. But he says in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, however far I thought I had climbed up the ladder of, of meriting God's mercy and God's compassion and justification, he said, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here it is. Listen carefully. He says, I want to be found in union with Christ. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, you see. And so Paul says that of himself in Philippians 3. And here in Galatians, he says, it's obvious. It should be obvious to anyone who reads the Bible that the righteous live in judgment by faith and faith alone. This leads Paul then to his third reason why doing the works of the law will never result in justifying righteousness. It's closely connected to what he just said. In verse 12, he says, the law is not of faith. Rather, he quotes again from the Old Testament, this time Leviticus 18.5, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. I think what Paul's saying here is this, that law and faith, law and faith cannot be combined. They are antithetical because law and faith operate on two very different principles. What did he say in verse 11? The righteous shall live by faith, then verse 12, but, this is a stark contrast in the Greek language, but, Contrary to that, the law is not of faith. Rather, what? The one who does them shall live by them. The righteous live by faith. The law says you'll live if you do them. <laughs> and what has, what has Paul been saying? No one can do them. And so you cannot combine these two things. They operate on two very different principles. And that was the problem. 
that these agitators, these Judaizers were, were creating and they were beginning to convince the Galatian Christians that you need to combine the two. Paul says you cannot combine the two. They, they work on two very different principles. The minute you seek to amend faith with works, you're no longer trusting. And life only comes from trusting, from relying on God. The minute you seek to contribute, you are no longer operating in faith. You can't put these two together. You can't merge them. You can't coalesce. You can't syncretize. However way can I say it? You can't fuse. You can't integrate works into faith. Works will be the product of faith but they cannot be integrated with faith as a means of being justified before God. You cannot do it. Jesus plus anything equals zero, right? Because now you've subtracted from the sufficiency of his work and you have tainted it, you see. And all human religions... All human religions, whatever their ultimate source, whatever they appeal to, they all include the efforts of men, including various Christian sects or so-called Christian sects. The Roman Catholic Church adds the sacraments and the works of the sacraments and, and, and coalesces, collapses uh, works into faith that you might be justified. Paul says, I'm already justified. <laughs> And I was justified by faith in Christ alone. Faith, works, operate on different principles. Kind of like, I hate to say it, but kind of like iPhone and Android. So, you know, think about it. Yeah. You get an app that's written to run on the Apple iOS operating system. You can't just take that app and put it on Android for it. You have phone. You have to upload or download, excuse me, a, an app that was written for that operating system. Now, I know there's techies here, and you're going to say it's more, it's more involved than that. I get that. But you understand my illustration. I'm going back to my own experience in the early days. Let me tell you, in the early days, when Mac first came out, it was a horror trying to take a Windows thing and make it run on a Mac. Why? Two different operating systems. What are the operating principles of faith and works? Here they are, listen. Faith operates on trust and results in receiving. And this produces gratitude and gives glory to God. Let me say it again. Faith operates on the principle of trusting and trusting brings what? Receiving the gift of God and that produces gratitude and gives glory to God. Works, law, operates on the principle of doing which results in earning or meriting and, and produces what? Produces boasting and trying to share the glory with God. Works, again, operates on doing and meriting or earning, which results in boasting and tries to share the glory with God, you see. Those are two antithetical operating systems. <laughs> in the spiritual world. You can't combine them. Once you start trying to combine works into the faith, you are no longer trusting. And it will lead to boasting. And what is boasting but human pride? This is what I call the natural embedded, the natural embedded inclination in human hearts to contribute, to do something, to accomplish something. It is against our natural inclination to just humble ourselves entirely and admit that unless God does something, I am lost forever. 
cannot do anything. I can't contribute a single thing, you see. That's the natural embedded inclination to do and it's contrary to, to grace. Scripture says what? Pro- God is opposed to the proud. What's that mean? That means he stands in the way. You're proud, you're walking, you're coming towards God. You know who stands in your way? You know who's opposed to you? You know who's in the road? <laughs> Blocking the way, it's God. He is opposed to your pride, your boasting, but he freely gives grace to the humble who humble themselves before the creator God and admit their sinners and need his grace, you see. And even after we become Christians, that pride is, ooh, it's just incipient. It gets back into our thinking, doesn't it? Many a Christian, right? Every Christian, at some point we say, look at me. And if we don't say it out loud, we think it. Look at me. Look how much I've been reading my Bible. Look how much I've done. Look how much I've served. Look how much I've given. Look how much I've improved. That's a different operating system, you see. Justification by faith, the gospel, is the only pathway that eliminates human boasting, that wipes human boasting off the face of the earth and gives the glory to God. Beloved, let me put it this way. God saves us sinners all by himself and he doesn't need our help. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) God saves sinners as lost as you might possibly be. How far you may have gone into the depths of sin. God saves sinners and he saves them without any help. That he might eliminate all boasting and magnify the glory of his name and his character into eternity. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no man, no one will boast. (laughs) For we are his workmanship. That work is poema, that word poema. We are, we are God's poem of salvation. Created for good works. Not saved by good works. That we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, and so forth. And Paul will elaborate on this in the book of Romans, which he wrote much later. It seems like his thinking had become much fuller by the Holy Spirit. Let me read you a few, a few passages. Romans chapter 3, 27 and 28. Paul says, what becomes, well, first, let me start in, verse, in 27, saying that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God justly justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. He says, then then what becomes of our boasting? He says, it's excluded by what kind of law? And by there, Paul means what kind of principle? What kind of principle? By the law of works? No, no, works, works is the ground for boasting. He says, no, by the law or principle of faith. Faith does away with human boasting. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's Romans 3. Then he uses Abraham again in Romans 4, chapter 4, verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works and things he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God, because that's not what happened. For what does Scripture say? And he quotes again, Genesis 15. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him. That means it was credited to his account as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you seek to add works to faith, 
then what you receive will be counted as your due. And what has Paul said? What is, you, what is your due? The wages of sin is death. Because you have not kept all the law of God. He goes on later in chapter 9, he returns to this question and he evaluates, well then what's happened to the people of Israel? Jesus came, remember he came to his own and his own knew him not. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 30, Paul says, what shall we say then that Gentiles, non-Jews who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? In other words, they weren't trying to keep the law of Moses and yet they've attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. (laughs) But as if it were based on works. (laughs) He goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 10, I bear them witness. He's talking about Israel. The many Jews in his time that rejected Jesus the Messiah, he said, I, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Oh, they're, they're very zealous. They're very religious, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is the righteousness that God gives freely, that justifying righteousness, being ignorant of that one and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then he says this profound word, for, for Christ, the Messiah, is the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone who believes. And if you were a bit more charismatic, you'd say glory, hallelujah, right now. Christ is the end. The end of righteousness through law for everyone who believes. What a gracious God. And so Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 5, you who would be justified by the law, oh, you who would add to what God has done and justify yourself by being circumcised, keeping the Sabbath, special diets, special days, you who would be justified by law, he says, chapter 5, verse 4, you've fallen away from grace. You are on the right path. You are on the pathway of blessing. You are on the pathway of eternal life, the pathway of grace, of salvation by grace through faith alone. And someone has convinced you. Someone's spoken to you. Someone has knocked you off the path. And that happens so easily. You've been knocked off the path of trusting and believing that leads to receiving and gives glory to God. I think the, uh, the, essential, the essential error of a works righteousness, what lies behind all this, is that we human beings, we have a tendency to do this. We have a tendency to make way too much of our deeds and way too little of God's holiness. No one can justify him or herself by deeds of the law. We make way too much of our good works and way too little of God's holiness and justice and righteousness. And so if the path of faith is the only way, what are we to trust? Well, that's what Paul says suddenly in verse 13. Verse 13 is very interesting. You notice up till now, there's been a connective word between each verse because he's been moving in an argument. It begins in verse 9, so then. Verse 10, for all who. Verse 11, now it is evident. Verse 12, but the law. Verse 13 has no connective word. He just splurts it out. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then he adds the supporting statement from Scripture, from Leviticus or Deuteronomy 21. He says, so that, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
Christ has already redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ to redeem is to buy back. Christ has already bought us out, bought us back from under the condemnation of the law. You've been set free from the wrath of God, set free from the curse. Why would you put yourself on this path of works? Redemption has been finished. It's done. And Christ has completed it. He has accomplished it on our behalf. In chapter 2, verse 21, he said, Remember, don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But he did die for a purpose, to redeem us from the curse. So Paul says, listen, it is a denial of the redemption fully achieved by Christ. Why is works righteousness never going to attain justifying righteousness because it is an utter denial, a rejection of the redemption already accomplished by Christ. <laughs> you abandon it, you see. Now when he quotes there in verse 13, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Again, in the original context of the statement from the law, from Deuteronomy 21, the meaning of this, the purpose of this was made clear there in that context. In Deuteronomy 21, one, God was giving instructions for Israel again that when someone, someone was to be condemned to death for breaking the covenant, such as in cases of murder, when someone had committed a covenant-breaking heinous sin, that person was to be first. First, that person was to be stoned to death. And then their lifeless body was to be taken and hung up on a tree and ultimately buried before sundown. And that was an ancient custom. You defeated an enemy, you hung their corpse on a post or something. And so God uh, implemented that and said to be a sign of the significance of breaking the covenant, these people are to be stoned to death and then they're to be hung on a tree and then have their bodies buried before dusk, before the sun comes down. It was a warning. It was a public display uh, of the penalty that comes from breaking covenant with God. You see, this is why Paul struggled so much with the Christian message before he was a Christian, remember? Because for Paul, who knew this, this verse, for the Messiah to hang on a tree was nonsense. Yeah, crucified Messiah makes no sense. That's, oxym that's an oxymoron. It's just insanity. Why? Because the law of God says cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And scholars have shown that many rabbis in the time of Christ, the time of, the, of Paul, had associated Deuteronomy with Roman crucifixion. Crucifixion. That was one way that you hung on a tree. And so Paul saw that, that you're saying that this Jesus of Nazareth is Messiah. I'm saying that he was cursed. <laughs> and it shows you the power of grace that that very same man who went persecuting Christians because they were claiming that this man who hung on a cross was the Messiah is now the very man telling us that's right. <laughs> He's saying, yes, it's right. I see it in the true light now. I understand it in the light of Scripture, he says. To be hung on a tree was a gruesome sign of utter alienation. God has cut you off completely. You are to be loathed. You have been cut off of the covenant people. You have been utterly abandoned and separated from the people of God. Look at you, hanging on a tree, lifeless, and some say it signified the fact that he didn't, that person didn't deserve to stand on the earth nor reach the heavens. His body was to be taken down and then put directly into the grave. Hmm. So Paul is saying that when Christ was crucified, what he experienced was the full and awesome power of the Father's hatred and wrath for our sin, for being lawbreakers. He experienced the curse of our law-breaking. But what made it efficacious? In other words, what made his death effectual for someone else, for you and me? Well, it's in that little preposition, for. For us. <laughs> Look at it. 
Luther, uh, Martin Luther is saying there's so much theology in just that one little preposition. <laughs> Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. <laughs> On behalf of us. And he accentuates how powerful was that this was that he doesn't even say he suffered the curse. He said he became a curse. He was utterly the cursed one when he was crucified for our sin. Just like he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says something very similar. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so it was the principle of what? What made his death as the death of of the curse of the law effectual for you and me it's it's the principle of substitution he did this for us it was a gracious substitution it was a voluntary substitution I lay down my life for the sheep says Jesus no one takes it for me from me it was a penal substitution it was for the penalty of our sins you see the payment of our sins and he became a curse at that moment. His was a slow and violent death, to be sure. But his sufferings were more than physical pangs. As much as I'm sure he felt them, maybe more than people who would be crucified. For he didn't take anything to help soothe them. And he was crucified at the height of his strength and youth a man who was, what, 33 years old? And the prophets and the psalmists, they spoke of this crucifixion, this curse before in many ways. Psalm 22 is maybe one of the most vivid psalms that captures the crucifixion and the suffering of Jesus centuries before the time of Jesus. And the psalm begins in this way. You know it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus said those words on the cross, you see, he was claiming that everything in this psalm was about him. Surely when David wrote this psalm, he was talking about human suffering that he himself experienced, but the, the, the rivers overflows its bank and it becomes only fulfilled entirely in the person of Christ. David said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer him by night, but I find no rest. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths in me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evil duels encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Be right to remember, Jews, he was crucified naked in public. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. That prayer was answered the third day when he was raised from the dead. Glory be to God. John Flavel, the 
The Puritan writes about the sufferings of Christ to help us understand what it was to be the curse, to be made the curse for our sins, for our curse, our covenant breaking. He said, the death of Christ doubtless contained the greatest and acutest pains imaginable. Why? He says, because these pains of Christ alone were intended to equalize all that misery which the sin of men deserved. All that pain which the damned shall and the elect deserve to feel. Now to have pains, pains meeting at once, all at once upon one person equivalent to all the pains of the damned, judge you what a plight Christ was in when he was crucified for our sins. Scripture says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. The prophet says all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned his own way but the Lord has caused, the Father has caused the iniquity of the soul to fall. That means to violently assault him by his wounds. We are healed. Pierced for my transgressions, wounded for my sins, the man of sorrows came to take my place. King of our creation, slain for my salvation, unspeakable love, abounding grace. Carrying my sorrows, lifting off my shame, bearing all my sin to set me free. Paul says, in essence, to turn now to the works of the law, to appeal to things that you are doing, do you seriously think you're going to improve upon what Christ has done? Do you seriously think that he needs your aid when he became a curse for you? No, it is finished, you see. And then Paul concludes and says, two glorious results of Christ being made a curse for us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, justifying righteousness, might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What Paul is saying, let me sum it up in two ways this morning. We're done. Paul is telling us that the glory of the gospel, the glory of the gospel is that God assumed the covenant curses himself in the person of Jesus Christ that believing sinners might be redeemed and experience the blessings of the covenant. Let me simplify it. The glory of the gospel is this. That God assumed the covenant curses himself that believing sinners might experience the blessings of the covenant. In Acts chapter 13, Paul was preaching a sermon and he said to everyone who was gathered, he was telling his testimony and he said, let it be known to you, and I say it to each of you, let it be known to you that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It's that clear. And so Paul teaches us that our deeds, our works, the works of the law contribute absolutely nothing to our justification. They have no place in being made right with God. There are two ways of viewing this. The way of faith alone, which results in receiving and gives glory to God, and the way of doing, which results in merit and seeks to share the glory with God. The question simply is, where, where are you in your thinking and in your heart, do you see? To as many as received them, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.